get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. Listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast on uh, our way to Easter. Happy Holy Week to all of our listeners uh, and to you, Justin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy Holy Week to everybody. Uh, as always, I'm ready to talk about the intersection between faith and politics. And we had a a pretty good week last week, uh, Brother Weir. As you know, the Ann Campaign's Frontline Discipleship Tour was in L.A. Uh, last week, and we had an event that was real strong. So I'd just like to give a shout out to everybody that was there. Shout out to Show Baraka, uh, Heidi Lewis, Propaganda came out, uh, and a special thanks to the Passion for Christ movement for all their help. But we had an exciting time in uh, L.A., and believers came out to support, so it was great. That's incredible, uh, man. Yeah, it's uh, uh, so wonderful to see uh, the, the the tour heading around the country and can't wait for more dates as we head deeper into the spring. Uh, I, let's let's jump into it, Justin. We have a lot, a, a lot happening uh, uh, this week, a lot to discuss. And I, I think there's no place that we could start uh, other than uh, the March for Our Lives, which uh, took place over the weekend. Uh, the counts will evolve, but uh, last I heard, 1.7 million uh, participate around the world, potentially 800,000 in D.C. alone. Uh, some are saying that the March for Our Lives could break all records for mass protests in in D.C. and and it was a it was a unique uh, unique event. It, it was uh, no uh, no adult spoke. There were adult uh, uh, performers, but no adult. Uh, spoke uh, at, at the march, uh, and it was it was powerful. It was moving. Uh, uh, w- w- do you think this is going to amount uh, to anything? Has it already amounted? What are we in the midst of, Justin? It certainly amounted to something. Um, anytime you bring out hundreds of thousands of people to march for a very serious issue, then you've uh, that's an accomplishment within itself. So I. I uh, give my hats off to those young people who spoke, made their voices heard. Uh, it was good to see them engaged on a very serious issue. Uh, the question is going to be uh, the follow up. The follow up is going to be really important to see if they can back all this up with pushing significant uh, legislation through. I'm hoping that they can maintain a bipartisan posture to all of this. I think that makes the chances better that they can get uh, some of this stuff pushed through. Um and so it was good to see a number of young people speak. It was good to see them step out and really uh, talk about a cause that was important to them and had affected their lives. Here at Church Politics, we've said that common sense gun control measures should be taken uh, through legislation. And we've even listed some uh, policy solutions for that. Again, I personally believe uh, that something must be done and that Congress needs to prioritize this. I still haven't seen it prioritized in a way that makes me comfortable, but hopefully uh, they can bring some pressure to this conversation. Uh, I, I was happy to see what happened, and I hope that the 
dialogue keeps moving forward in a constructive way. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, uh, a a number of the speakers were were, were powerful. Uh, There was a a young man, uh, D'Angelo McCade, who who asked what I think was the most poignant question of of the event. He, He this young man said, when will we as a nation understand that nonviolence is the way of life for courageous people? Uh, and, and, and that is just, just, uh, incredible uh, language. It's, it's, I would urge folks to go back and, and watch this young man's, uh, uh this young man's speech. Um, it, it was resonant with, uh, uh, with uh, so much uh, good thought. Uh, and, uh, I, I was, I was encouraged to hear rhetoric like that at this, at this march. You know, the, the one thing, and I, I want to affirm, uh, what a joy it was and how encouraging it is to see young people civically engaged, to see young people speaking out politically. I want to affirm that, uh, that, uh, these young activists feel uh, many of the young activists feel, uh, not without, uh, grounding that they're having to speak up because adults obfuscated. Uh, the one thing I've been thinking of though, Justin, and I, and I don't really have, uh, I, these are, this is a genuinely open, open-ended question. I, I, I just don't know where it leads. Uh, uh but, you know, in politics, so much of, of it is about finding an effective messenger. And once effective messengers are found, uh, the aim is to, to destroy them, uh, if you oppose the cause that they're advancing. And there are all kinds of different sort of methods and tactics for, for identifying, uh, and cultural reasons for who counts as an effective messenger. Uh, and, you know, from that perspective, there there is something. There is something that seems like there's a short term sort of strategy to it, but I'm not sure of the long term consequences of having a whole bunch of adults who have supported gun control for a very long time, uh, uh, encouraging and actually putting out in front of the leadership. Because right, the, these kids didn't. Didn't get the park permits by themselves. The, uh, uh, the, the, these kids didn't, uh, they actually worked with one of the major national, uh, gun movement lobbies, uh, in, in the country to put on these events. Uh, and so I, I'm concerned about what it says when you have adults who have supported gun control measures for all their lives and are politically involved, but they're actually, uh, positioning these kids as, Sort of leaders of the cause, and what does that do, sort of, for our political discourse in the short term? But what does it do for the state of of children in our society uh, in 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 the long term? Uh, wh- what does this set up children to be perceived as in terms of their responsibilities, in terms of how they're viewed by by adults, by the rest of society? It, it's just, it, did it? Did it strike you at all? There's a bit of like um uh th- as hopeful as it was, uh, there's an undercurrent of cynicism about uh 
how adults are uh the rhetoric adults are using uh to speak about these kids yeah yeah um so while i maintain obviously the support for what these students did if they thought it was necessary i think we need to be honest about the fact that they didn't necessarily do it all by themselves which is okay uh, but we need to represent that because we don't want a situation where number one there's all this um unhelpful criticism and ad hominems coming at kids but then at the on the other side we want to make sure that um they're not being used as human shields for policy either right and so the tough part when it comes to this type of conversation is that once you step out and make public statements on serious issues it's fair game to have some criticism right, right. I mean, that's that's really par for the course. It's necessary for our deliberative process. There's no one who can step into the deliberative process or the discourse and not have some criticism or people say something about them. That's harder to do when you're talking about kids, when you're talking about teenagers, high schoolers. However, if that's going to happen, then everyone needs to be very honest and clear on what that means. And so you can't put kids out there and then say, hey, don't say anything about them. Don't question their argument. Everything they say goes, believe the young people and that's it. That's not how it works. And so that's where it gets really tough. So the first thing I would say again is make sure we're honest about this. Yes, these kids took initiative. No, they didn't do it all by themselves. Whoever is helping them needs to be clear about the help that they're giving to them. So we're so we're being honest about that. There's no need for ad hominems and unhelpful criticism when it comes to these kids. But they are not um, uh, they, they still have to be subject to those kind of uh, critiques because that's part of the process. And if legislation passes, it's going to affect everyone. So no one is uh, uh, no one is outside of the realm of that type of criticism because it's important for our process. Yeah, it- it's it's just such an interesting thing to think about, and one of the reasons it's interesting is, uh, you know, I'm not aware of uh, historical parallels for for something like something like this uh, on this kind of scale. Obviously, there have been uh, young people who have given speeches before. There have been, but sort of the 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 political positioning of it all is just very very unique, and you know. I, I'm something I, I'm going to be thinking about over the coming weeks, and it'll be interesting to see if this is just sort of a fleeting political moment, or whether uh, we see some kind of rise in uh, sort of in this polarized age, the children being used to put on the best, uh, most sort of like persuasive, uh, uh, discomforting. Uh, face on uh, an array of uh of political uh political issues uh it, i know uh, listeners I, I know we just opened up a very like high level uh 30,000 120,000 foot view it's uh, uh we'd love to hear your thoughts on this on this question what do you think are the benefits and the downfall or or the uh the the, the negative aspects of uh of of having a political movement led by children i can think of a lot of upsides to that uh, that they are the people who will be uh inheriting the decisions that uh that those who are able to be elected to office and able to vote uh will will be making but we'd love to hear your thoughts uh with that we'll take a break and when we come back we'll discuss 
some shakeups in Washington as per usual uh, and, and some other issues as well. This is the Church Politics Podcast. I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person that I actually at least pretend to give a damn about us. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult, related questions that are begging to be answered. Two grown men picked him up, a 15-year-old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look, they look to us, right? They say, you fucking this is what happens to you. God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters. I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Justin, we saw more uh, shakeups at the White House this past uh, this past week. This one was uh, something that uh, many people expected right out of the gate from uh, from from this president, uh, and that is uh, giving John Bolton a, a significant role in the White House as National Security Advisor to replace H.R. McMaster uh, and. Uh, Bolton has been a uh, something of a lightning rod in uh, foreign policy circles and really in American national security debates over the last several uh, decades. And now he'll be uh, uh, leading, uh, you know, serving as national security advisor to the president, really at the at the heart of of power. Bolton, uh, for those who uh, don't know, Bolton was former ambassador to the U.N. under George W. Bush. He's known as uh, a neoconservative, uh, someone who's uh, uh, someone who advocates for use of force in a pretty wide, wide range of circumstances, at least in the past. Uh, and so there are there are many people who are uh, concerned about Bolton being appointed. Uh, on the other hand, I just want to affirm my sort of belief in proceduralism and uh, the fact that the president gets to appoint his advisors, uh, and this is the president we elected. Uh, but, but Justin, what do you think? You know, I'm interested in what you think of John John Bolton and, and sort of uh, what his appointment means for foreign policy. I'm also interested in what the fact that Trump ch- decided now is the time to appoint him. Uh, what it says about sort of the the state of mind in the White House and particularly with the president, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty bold move. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, President Trump is starting to choose a lot of people who were uh, in, in his own image, right? Mm-hmm. As before, he was, he was, you know, we had said earlier that Trump's foreign policy team was a bright spot amidst a lot of questionable picks for his administration. And now that's changing a little bit. Uh, as you said, Bolton is an interesting character. Uh, he is a war hawk, which really is someone who's aggressive when it comes to foreign affairs and war. He's particularly tough when it comes to North Korea and Iran. And so, as you said, for him to be picked at this moment when 
there's supposed to be a conversation with uh, North Korea. Uh, things could really get heated up is interesting. Uh, as you know, this pick caused some heartburn among Democrats and Republicans because of his because of statements he's made and what some would say were his anti-Muslim views. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine even questioned whether Bolton would be able to pass security clearance uh, in 19. I'm sorry. In in 2013, he gave a speech at the request of a Russian oligarch who apparently is fairly close with Putin. So that may cause some issues. Even uh, Governor John Kasich said that uh, Bolton's talk about preemptive strikes. Apparently, he said something about preemptively striking North Korea, that those were, to say the least, problematic and that aggression should be should not be a default response or or the default posture for uh, the United States of America. A lot of people are just feeling like Bolton brings us closer to war yeah. uh, because he's a hawk, because he takes these really harsh positions when it comes to foreign policy, that this puts us in a, a lot more unstable position than someone like McMaster, who wasn't seen as so eager to jump into a war type situation or any type of dispute with with some of the people that we're having trouble with this. We're going to have to see how it works out, but I'm I'm not feeling as good about his foreign policy team as I was at the beginning of the administration. I I think that's fair. And it's not just the staff uh, uh, that are in place, but we see our relationships around uh, around the world with international organizations and with foreign governments. And there are some people who, who don't think, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's vital to have, uh, good relationships with foreign governments, but, but we're, we're seeing our relationships, uh, in many ways deteriorate. Uh, and then we're also seeing conflicts in places like North Korea escalate to, uh, the point where, uh, leading foreign policy experts uh, like Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations are saying that we we don't have any good options uh, uh, left. Uh, Trump obviously inherited uh, a great number of you know when he came into office uh, he wasn't dealing with a blank uh, blank slate. The question has always been: uh, Is he going to be able to navigate and put together a team? Uh, that can navigate the pressing challenges that were already on America's docket. It doesn't inspire confidence that uh, the national security team that he picked as, you know, best to, uh, best to do that a year ago is different than the one that he has now, like almost entirely. <laughs> uh, and so uh, uh, this turnover on the, on domestic policy is a, a little more familiar to have this kind of turnover on the national security side uh, is is a cause for concern. That's right. This is a, a place where you want stability, uh, consistency, and you want cool heads to prevail. This isn't somewhere where you want volatility or a whole bunch of changes going on. So I think everyone should feel some kind of way about this change. Hopefully it works out for the best. Hopefully General Kelly and others can can kind of calm the storm and get people into position where we can really create a foreign policy that's best for, for us and for uh, the globe. And so we'll see what happens, but I wasn't excited uh, to say the least about this pick. Yeah. The other big political news last week uh, was, you know, we had another spending bill fight and though it did, you know, they did go down to the, they did go on down to the last hour on this one again. Uh, we did see 
President Trump uh, sign a $1.3 trillion spending bill uh, in, into law. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting bill. Uh, the Atlantic uh, wrote a, a, a wry headline, something along the lines of uh, uh, Congress passes Obama's budget to make him proud. Uh, basically referencing the fact that uh, Democratic uh, spending priorities uh, were really, uh, really uh, covered in the bill. So uh, on health care, Planned Parenthood wasn't uh, wasn't defunded. Well, there was a three billion dollar increase in funding for medical research. Uh, there was an increase in the Head Start program, which has always been a major Democratic priority. Uh, the, the White House that considered uh, cutting the EPA by 30 uh, percent actually is uh, the spending bill increases funding for the EPA. Uh, and, and so it's it's a it's a really uh, it's interesting. Now, Trump came out uh, before he signed it, uh, threatening a veto for what was a very odd sort of a few hours on Friday. Uh, but he ended up signing this bill. He said he would not sign another like it. Uh, but, but, uh, gosh, Republicans are in control of the House, the Senate, the White House. Uh, and yet because of the dissension in the party, because, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how attentive this White House has been to building a budget strategy and, and trying to usher their priorities in through Congress. Uh, they 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 had to vote for some some things that uh, they've been actively speaking out against for the last year, uh, not just to uh, sort of in halls of power, but to their to their voters. Yeah, I think this told some Republicans who voted against it that hey, if you're not going to work with us, we're, re- we're we're willing to kind of work and give Democrats a lot of things that they want. This was in no uh, by no means was this an L for Democrats. Uh, as you said, uh, the, the Trump said that he, he might veto it, but ended up not vetoing it. He also called for the elimination of the filibuster so that they get, could get things through Congress quicker. And then he said that he wanted Congress to give him a line item veto. And what a line item veto is, <laughs> is once a bill goes through Congress, it would allow the president to actually pass the bill while taking certain things out. So he, he wouldn't have to veto the whole bill, just certain items within that uh, that bill. The the part about that that's uh, not good or interesting is that that's actually consti- uh, unconstitutional. Right. Uh, so yeah. says the Supreme yeah. Court. That, so that little thing. That, that, <laughs> right. That that that's not going to happen. Uh, so Trump signed it grudgingly. Uh, one of the things that he was upset about is that the legislation didn't address DACA, which I may share that concern. Um, uh, and it so he did get some about six point. I'm I'm sorry, one point six million in border security. He got uh, $2.1 billion for infrastructure, which included $50 million for the Savannah port. And that's big news here in Georgia. There was funding for the Pentagon, uh, funding for the fight against the opioid epidemic. Uh, and so you saw a lot of things, like you said, that Democrats were happy about. Um, and a lot of folks like deficit hawks like Bill Corker were upset. But you had more than 60 percent of Republicans actually voting for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the other way to look at this, and, you know, this is one of the interesting moves sort of Trump administration makes, and, and so so much is unorthodox, so it's hard to step back. Uh, it, 
they sent an interesting message by signing this bill, which is they sent the message that Washington is still broken and Trump sort of obfuscated blame for that. But the other thing he did, uh, you know, Democrats are going to try and run a campaign saying that, you know, this White House uh, uh, doesn't care about education, doesn't care about the environment, doesn't care about uh, uh, so much, isn't doing anything on the opioid crisis. By signing the spending bill that included so many Democratic priorities, uh, it it does it, it does I think it will in the political conversation potentially undercut uh, uh, some of Democratic attempts to uh, to to paint this administration as obstinate as uh, overly partisan as extreme. Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this how this plays out. I think the fact is that we're just working with an administration that has very, as we've discussed on church politics podcast before, we're dealing with an administration that has uh, uh, a very narrow set of unmovable policy commitments. And then everything else is negotiable because we have a president who up until a year and a half ago uh, had never held public office. That's right. They're going to be keeping Republicans on their toes. It's going to be uh, we'll have to wait and see how this works out, but certainly not the spending bill that many Republicans wanted. And we heard that about that quite a bit over the weekend. Yeah, for sure. Let, let's take a break. When we get back, uh, we need to talk Facebook again. Uh, uh, we've been paying attention to this issue uh, basically since the podcast inception, and it's been in- incredible uh, and uh, disheartening to see. Uh, these questions become even more pressing. So when we get back, we'll talk Facebook. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and, and Justin, uh, again, we have been talking a great deal about the role of big data in politics, uh, ab- about how social media has been mis- misused to manipulate manipulate voters, manipulate our political discourse. And this Facebook story uh, is uh, an encapsulation of basically the themes that we've talked about uh, over the last year. Uh, Justin, do you want to break down for folks the news that came out regarding Cambridge Analytica? Uh, and, I, you know, you've really been leading on, on this stuff. Uh, what does this, did anything surprise you uh, about the way that, uh, Facebook was able to be manipulated. I was somewhat surprised, but now that I look back uh, and read some some good uh, information on it, uh, we should have seen this coming. Uh, just so everyone knows, Cambridge Analytica was a data mining company that worked with the Trump can- campaign. And I, I believe they also worked with the Cruz campaign during the primary. And what they did was harvested of the personal data of millions of Facebook users during the presidential campaign. Uh, It's been called a data breach. uh, But to be clear, from what I can tell, um, nothing illegal was involved. But Cambridge Analytica was using the data uh, much like Facebook uses it and and at times actually encouraged it. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who has gone from one type of goat kind of to another uh, kind of goat, admitted that the data scandal is a breach of trust. Yeah. Uh, because users, he said, share data uh, and expect Facebook to protect the data. Uh, Facebook said that they will audit all the apps accessing large amounts of data. 
and restrict what data developer developers can access. Some people are just saying that's too little, too late. And it's very clear that protecting the consumers didn't seem to be the priority of Facebook. The big questions that we're going to have to have answered is, number one, why didn't uh, Facebook report Cambridge Analytica's refusal to delete user data when it learned about it in 2015? So right now, uh, uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook are basically saying, well, they told us they were going to delete data, but they didn't end up deleting it. Well, they found out about that in 2015 and said nothing about it. The other question is, why weren't steps taken earlier? And so when everything blows up and, you know, folks didn't get the result they wanted, uh, now they're trying to take all these steps and, and fix things. And there was a very good article in the Washington Post about this by uh, Ifioma Ajunwa. And I hope I didn't butcher that name too bad. But here's what she said. She said that although Facebook is now scrambling to address the data breach, the exposure exposure of consumer data has serious consequences and Facebook and its competitors cannot simply be left to regulate themselves. It is time to change the American hands off attitude to data protection. Mm -hmm. Data protection in the United States remains a wild west with companies given carte blanche to collect consumer information and tech companies taking cowboy mentality, taking a cowboy mentality toward enriching themselves from users data. There should be clear rules about how consumers may opt into data collection and informed consent regarding how much data may be used. A lot of people are calling even for some of these social media companies to be regulated like utility companies. We could be seeing a huge change to how these uh, uh, social media companies are treated by regulators. So that should be something we should keep our eye on. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've actually been a, a bit heartened to see the, the debate go, uh, where, where it should go, which is that, that we just don't have the regulations that we need in place that, uh, political campaigns and, corporations and anybody else who could benefit from using this data they're going to find ways to to use it uh it, it's it's going to be sold it's going to be packaged unless we have regulations that prevent prevent that in other words like uh, this very valuable data about american and global consumers is not going to be left on the table unfortunately by Many actors uh, in the United States and around the world, just out of uh, a sense of respect for others. <laughs> Unfortunately, we live in a world and in a system where if something is of economic value, uh, that that will be exploited uh, unless there are effective uh, regulations and legislation uh, that that restricts that. Uh, and so. Uh, we saw the Apple CEO, Tim Cook, call for uh, 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 in increased regulation to protect uh, 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 people's data uh, online, uh, to protect digital data. And so uh, that's really what's what's needed here. I, I do. Uh, I wasn't thinking of it when we started this conversation. Uh, the uh, SESTA uh, bill, which is a. Uh, a bill uh, aimed at 
cracking down on online sex trafficking. So pages like uh, Backpage.com actually passed last week uh, by, I believe, 97 to 2 vote with bipartisan legislation sponsored by Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, uh, Claire McCaskill of Missouri, uh, John McCain was a major, major force behind it. Uh, given my work in human trafficking, I've been following this bill and advocating for it for, uh, for quite a long time. And, uh, early on, it just didn't seem like it was going to be possible because all the big communications firms were against it because basically it would, it would, uh, it would allow, uh, officials to, to regulate the use of pages like, uh, Backpage, um, for, uh, for sex trafficking. It would make, sort of these uh, website operators uh, to some extent accountable for what happens on these forums that they provide. And uh, many sort of free and open internet uh, folks, civil liberties folks, uh, folks, uh, uh, folks who advocate for, uh, for, uh, uh, for sort of uh, radically open communications were against the bill. Google was spending money, uh, is my understanding. Google was spending money uh, to oppose it, major communications firms, but, uh, a bipartisan action was passed. And I, I think what played into it is this conversation about online data and the fact that we, uh, it, we've introduced, uh, these huge sources of the data, these big playgrounds for some people, uh, without, and we're having to regulate sort of, uh, behind the curve. Uh, and so, uh, it, it's, it's such a, uh, it's going to be one of the compelling debates of our time to figure out what to do with these forces we've unleashed on social media and through uh, digital digital portals that um, that collect information about us and and yeah, that we I, really have an online online person. Yeah, I'm wondering. I'd like to hear who those two people who voted against this bill were and what and why they voted against it. I mean, they may have had good reasons, but I'd certainly like to hear what those reasons uh, were. Uh, I think it's good. I think you have to put the responsibility on these uh, social media companies and the folks who control it. One of the rules that we talked about in law school quite a bit was that you put the responsibility and the duty on the person who has the most control of the situation. Uh, and so uh, consumers as a collective are going to have a harder time controlling that than the people who actually created the platform. And so I think it's right and, and consistent with uh, our laws to put that onus on them to make sure that they're having more control and watching out for consumers. Consumers can no longer be uh, an afterthought. And when we look at what happened with Facebook, I don't get the feeling that they were super surprised that this was a possibility. I, I get the feeling that they were trying to maximize profits. And, 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 and they got in some, to some trouble while they were trying to maximize profits. But we don't, we also want to be charitable to them as well. They, I'm, I'm sure they didn't want anyone to get hurt in this situation or to, uh, or to affect an outcome. But it shows us that when it comes to ethics and social media and all those things, we have a lot of work to do, as you said, brother, where to catch up to technology and all that's going on. Because while technology is very, can be very, um, helpful, there are things that we always have to watch out for that we may not have encountered before. Well, uh, when we get back after the break, uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, Stephen Clark in Sacramento. Uh, this is Church Politics Podcast.
We're back at the Church Politics Podcast, and the last issue we have uh, for you uh, this week uh, is is a, a sad one, one that we've discussed on this podcast before. Uh, and, and you know, I just want to—it's—it's uh, it, it's an issue to debate and discuss, uh, uh, but this. This is so much more than an issue. <laughs> it's so much more than uh, it, we can. It, it, uh, these kinds of debates can get abstracted so easily uh, when, at the end of the day, they end up being about someone like Stephen Clark, who was 22 years old, was in the backyard of, of the house where he was living when two police officers shot him uh, 20 times on March 18th. Police said they thought he was holding a gun. No weapon was found. A cell phone was found. Uh, we've seen a protest in Sacramento. Uh, this was raised at the March for Our Lives. Uh, and uh, Justin, uh, would love for you to reflect on Stephen Clark and, and what's needed moving forward. Yeah. So, um, you know, my prayers go out to Stefan Clark and his family. Um, we have to start getting this right. We have to get it right. Whether it's about training, uh, whether it's about any other issue, uh, the process that they go through, we have to find a way to get this right. Too many unarmed, uh, black men and others are dying, uh, in these type situations. Uh, and I think it's important for us, all of us, to be gracious and just to mourn for a while. Uh, I, I appreciate what went on in Sacramento and how people got up and, and voiced their concerns. There's nothing at all wrong with that. Um, but we want to get to the bottom of what's going on so we can actually come up with solutions. And sometimes it takes us getting out there and speaking truth to power to get the will uh, in, in the political realm and other places to actually make that happen. We all have to take some time out. We all have to clear our minds and really look at this issue and say, how can we change this? How can we all be a part of that? I have a lot of working for the city of Atlanta for as long as I did. I have a lot of police officers who are my friends, um, who I think it's important for us to have conversations with those people and see what they go through. Uh, they, they make mistakes. Some of them don't do what they're supposed to do. And when, uh, they violate the rules or violate the process, then they have to, uh, be held accountable for it. Uh, but let's not assume that's always the case. Let's look into what happened and act accordingly. Uh, but we, but nothing more important than praying on this issue, coming together and trying to get some understanding. And I, I I'm just um, hurt to see that this happened again. And I'm hoping that we can find some solutions. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the videos have been uh, released. Their major discussion this morning is, uh, that the body cameras were muted for, for a significant portion uh, of, of the video. And there's uh, the, the Sacramento police chief himself said that, that it builds suspicion when body cameras are muted. Uh, and so, you know, with this specific case, Justin, it, it, it is, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, 
it's a difficult issue to to sort through. It's a difficult thing to sort through. Uh, but but I agree with others who have uh, who have said that part of the problem is is what we invest uh, in police uh, sort of emotionally and what we what we expect from law enforcement and what we're willing to what we're willing to accept from law enforcement so long as uh so long as uh, we feel personally safe and secure uh, just in our in our neighborhoods and in our uh in a, in our own persons uh and and that's a that's a difficult thing to break down because at the end of the day these expectations on law enforcement are going to be held by uh uh by a large percentage of of voters <laughs> and a large percentage of citizens uh who are uh, uh who, who are thinking about this personally as as i you know think is reasonable and, and so I, I would just say you know i think cultural cultural change is going to be going to be necessary uh if 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 the way that law enforcement operates is is going to be changed and again we're not talking uh all law enforcement all the time uh uh but but we are uh, we are talking about a, a series of uh certainly you know a, a pattern of of incidents yeah and, and I, I it's important for us to keep our eye on the solution. And it's my opinion that we will find a solution quicker, not by demonizing either right. side, but by really coming together and having conversations. There's no issue with being upset. There's a lot of instances where we need to be upset. But at the end of the day, by embracing one another, trying to understand what people go through, trying to understand the situation that cops are in on a daily basis and how that affects them as they go about different uh, cases and whatnot, is important to coming up with a solution. And the solution is the number one thing, not uh, how, how witty you can sure. be and calling the cops right. out and calling them names. What is the solution? Because kids are dying. And so we can either sit back and, and, and try to shine with our rhetoric or we can get something done. And I hope we choose the latter. All right, Justin, uh, we we're, we're landing this plane. Uh, it's uh, Holy week. Uh, I want to give just one last shout out to uh, folks in the Senate uh, who passed SESTA uh, that took an important step, though totally not, you know, a, 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 uh, uh, certainly isn't going to end sex trafficking everywhere, but it's, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for sex traffickers to operate online. And for that, I'm thankful uh uh, Justin, uh, any any final words? What what are you looking for uh, this week? I, I know my church has something like ten services in between now and uh, Sunday, and I'm looking forward to all of them. <laughs> actually, actually, uh, my church uh, celebrates Easter in a really, really wonderful, wonderful way. We have some special services between now and and Sunday that I'm I'm looking forward to. Uh, uh, Justin, what about you? You got plans for Easter? I do. Uh, we'll be at sunrise service, but the Gibbony boys, my two sons have their Easter speeches and they've been practicing, uh, quite a bit. So I'm, I'm excited to see the Gibbony boys Easter speech and everybody out there just have a, a happy Thanksgiving. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'm Man, thankful, but 
<laughs> Let's run that back. <laughs> and just God bless everyone. Have a wonderful Easter. He is risen. Amen. Happy Easter. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.